Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. In his latest book, Democracy, If We Can Keep It, the ACLU's 100-Year Fight for Rights in America, Ellis Coast relates the dramatic, often turbulent, controversial, and in many cases, little-known story of how the American Civil Liberties Union has, over the past century, regularly responded to the need to defend the Bill of Rights and how it has persisted in that mission for those 100 years. It's published by the New Press. But before we begin, my apologies to all the listeners who were looking forward yesterday to my interview with Grace Lee and Marjan Safini about their documentary, And She Could Be Next. The same power adage that knocked me off the air on Tuesday due to tropical storm Asayas has kept me without power until now. But the good news is that Grace Lee and Marjan Safini will be our guest next Wednesday, August 10th. And a big, big thanks to both of them for their patience as well. Ellis, welcome to our show. I'm delighted to be with you, Leonard. You've been a columnist for Newsweek, the, the chairman of the editorial board at the New York Daily News, a contributor and critic for, for Time magazine, a columnist for USA Today. Did you do much writing about the ACL, ACLU while you were at any of those jobs? I was not how you define much. I mean, a lot of what I covered had to do with human rights and with civil rights. Um, and I would, I certainly was aware of the ACLU and wrote about them periodically. It was, it, I, I was not an ACLU reporter in the sense that I was not on the ACLU beat in any sense. But they would, but they would often, their interests would often intersect with issues that I wrote about, whether they were issues of, of voting rights or, or issues of, of civil rights or, or related issues of that, of that sort. So, so I was certainly familiar, very familiar with the, with the ACLU. I mean, I knew their leadership. Uh, I regularly talked with them, but I did not know them in depth and did not really know their history. Uh, the genesis of this book uh, began when they invited you to become their first ever writer in residence. Uh, were they giving you complete editorial independence and yeah, complete access very to their archives? Uh, yes, I, I was going to say it was a very an interesting situation. Uh, Anthony Romero, who was then and still is the executive director, and I had, had known each other uh, from several um, different connections, but including his time as head of the ACLU, and they were looking for something interesting in, in, in terms of, of affiliating with somebody who might want, might be interested in writing about uh, human rights and civil liberties issues. Um, and I was, not any, I was not interested in going on staff or doing anything in that capacity. Um, and what we finally came up with was this idea of that you know, I would be a writer in residence there, which meant that I would not be an ACLU employee. I would not be subject to their rules. I would not have, I would have my own editorial independence, but I could use their resources and rely on their on, on their people to talk uh, through issues or to research issues related to things I was writing about. And initially, actually, I I was, I was thinking my uh, primary work was going to be a, a book on criminal criminal justice reform and criminal justice issues. Um, but ultimately, I ended up focusing on the ACLU itself. And, and, and at that point, uh, I decided, and for a number of reasons, I mean, once uh, Trump was elected, uh, it became clear that civil liberties was going to become just a huge issue in America. And also, the ACLU decided to take the position even before he actually took office, but based on his statements made during his campaign, that he was likely to be a menace to civil liberties. And they had issued a warning uh, about that. Um, and I said, Although they really took good. out an ad in the New York Times, didn't they? 
Yeah, they, to, they took uh, out a full-page ad in the New York Times and basically said, look, if you try to try to do what you say you want to do, uh, we are going to be on the other side, and we're going to we're, and we're going to fight you at every pass because a lot of what you want to do is in violation of the Constitution, and they in effect called, called him a you know a constitutional menace. So that was that was that was unusual, uh, and and never in their history, as far as I'm as I know, had they ever before a president even took office that based on your platform, based on the statements that you've made. Based on what you you claim you want to do, uh, you are an enemy of of, um, the, of the Bill of Rights, and we're going to um, confront you on that basis. And so, large, so partly for that reason, partly because under a um, administration run by Trump, I can really see the sort of criminal justice reform coming about that I was interested in, in promoting. I shifted uh, focus, um, and in shifting focus, I, I also decided that um, it was no longer appropriate for me to remain as writer in residence for the ACLU, so I, severed, so I severed all formal ties with them and decided to do a book on the ACLU instead. Were they at all concerned about just how messy some of their story turns out to be? Well, I don't know. I mean, I can't, I can't speak for their level of concern. What I will say is that I was very upfront uh, with them from the beginning, and I said, you know, this is not going to be an ACLU book. Uh, you know, I'm going to write about the triumphs, but also about some of the failures, and, and, I, and it's going to be a, a fair look at, at this institution and, and what it's gone through over the last hundred years. And they were fine with that. They, you know, they, they, I think, to their credit, never try, never try to say, look, you know, we're not quite. We're not so proud of this part of our history. Can you not emphasize that? Uh, and they didn't try to exert any editorial control. And um, so, I mean, whether they agreed with it or not, and, and I'm sure that that you know left to their druthers, as, as is true with any organization, uh, they probably would have preferred to focus only on the triumphs. But I think in order to tell a, a good story, you have to, or, or an, an honest story, you have to focus on the whole organization and the whole history. You begin your book years before the founding of the ACLU in the, in the early years of World War One, with a discussion of the debate between the people who felt we should prepare for war, which included uh, the Woodrow Wilson administration and the growing peace movement. And you have an amazing cast of activists, suffragists, settlement house pioneers, socialists, and industrialists in, in this story. Um, now, who were the founding committee, and did they grow out of that that peace uh, debate? We, we did wind up, of course, going into World War One. Sure, I, I think that's just a fascinating part of their history, and it's important, I think, if you're going to understand how the ACLU developed, and, and, and more importantly, how the whole emphasis on civil liberties in America developed uh, around the turn of the century. And let me just you know, say, say this, Leonard. I mean, most people think, well, wait a minute. Yeah, we've had a Bill of Rights since right after the Constitution was, was passed because it was the first set of amendments to the Constitution. So that goes back to 1791. So, so, we, so we've always had a Bill of Rights. We've always had free speech. We've always had freedom of assembly. We've always had all these things. So, so why did we even need an ACLU? or any organization like that. And for reasons that I'm sure we'll, we'll get to, mm. in point of fact, we didn't always have a Bill of Rights that was taken seriously. And it was not until the 20th century 
that we, uh, as a country, really embraced the Bill of Rights and decided that, that 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 freedom of speech and freedom of assembly actually meant what it said. Uh, but so so that being said, I mean, back in 1915, um, there was a, uh, a woman's peace party that was um, organized under the leadership of Jane Adams, the founder of Hull House. Um, and they were very interested in keeping the United States out of World War One. You know, at at the time, uh, Woodrow Wilson was not interested in getting, who was the president, of course, was not interested in getting involved in the World War. In fact, he he had run his campaign on on, on the slogan, you know, he kept us out of war. Uh, and so there, there. Well, actually, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself. He ran his 1916 campaign on that, but 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 his whole emphasis was not on getting into the war. You know, and um, the the organization that formed in 1915 under with the help of Jane Adams, but but actually under the leadership of a woman named Crystal Eastman, who was a very interesting person. I mean, she yes. was a an, an Ivy League graduate. Uh, she had a law degree from New York University. Um, she came from and a prominent she, family. She proposed the first Equal Rights Amendment way back then. Way back then, yeah. So, so yeah. she was really a uh, she, she was a, she was a women's rights uh, activist. She was a suffragette, uh, and she was a you know a privileged part of New York society. And so the when when the uh, and and they decided as the preparedness movement was 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 growing force in the United States, and that was a movement of people who wanted to prepare us for war and thought it was inevitable that the United States was going to get involved in the European war, she wanted to, she got together with an an array of like-minded people mm. to combat that. And they became something at the end of 1915 called the American Union Against Militarism. And that organization's purpose was to do everything they could to keep the United States out of war. You know, obviously that that they they met with with Woodrow Wilson. Um, they had uh, meetings and rallies across the country. Uh, they they put forth all kinds of of, of, of literature and propaganda to making the argument uh, that um, getting into this war was folly. And they probably actually did keep us out of war with uh, with Mexico. Um, but in in 1917, as you know, I mean, we did end up uh, going to war. And the whole question then became, well, what's the purpose, or, or does this organization even have a purpose? What's the, what's the function of an organization that was formed to keep us out of war? And what they discovered uh, was that there was a big new um, series of issues that, that arose around people who opposed the war, around young men who uh, wanted to become conscientious objectors because uh, in World War I we had a, you know, a, a nationwide draft. Um, and there were, there were people who were um, getting persecuted for speaking out. There were people getting arrested for speaking out. Uh, and it's, they it's said, called the Pomerays, right, wasn't it? Well, the Pomerays came a little bit later. Um, oh, okay. But 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 but, but, the, but in in um, in 1917 itself, it was more the problem. Well, there the big event from 1917, actually, in addition to a series of of smaller episodes where uh, folks got arrested for you know, making speeches against the war, people got arrested 
for uh, forming organizations that were anti-war was the was the uh, prosecution and the persecution of the IWW, you know, the Industrial Workers mm-hmm. of the World, which was an anti-war union. I mean, they were uh, called into court. 166 members, all including all their leadership, were all indicted. It was a, a huge group mm-hmm. indictment. In 1917, and then and the biggest trial that America had ever seen was the trial of these 166 members um, hauled into federal court in Chicago, um, who were charged essentially with with with, 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 with sedition, violating the Sedition Act and and, and violating the Wartime Acts, um, and so so that was that was the that was the first big case. That um, Roger Baldwin, who became the leader of the of the ACLU, and and other members of what became the ACLU, were sort of involved in helping with. Um, but jumping ahead to what you just wait, mentioned. wait, can I mention some of the other names? Because it's incredible: Helen sure. Keller, Hel- uh, Morris Ernst, uh, Arthur Garfield Hayes, Felix Frankfurter, Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, along with Roger Baldwin and and Jane Adams. Uh, and Crystal Eastman. It, it, it was an amazing group of people. Uh, were they all friends, or did they just all feel that they had to con- uh, get together well, because they were so concerned about the erosion of uh, the the uh, the Bill of Rights? And I think Lillian Wald. I don't think you mentioned her. I mean, she was founder uh, one of the one of the first sure. houses in New York. Then uh, you know they weren't necessarily friends in the beginning, but they were um, colleagues united in, in purpose. And and as they worked together, they of course became friends. Um, you know, at that at the time, Roger Baldwin, who ultimately became head of the ACLU, was actually um, out west, um, and he was in, well, in Detroit, I guess. You know, and 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 he came back um, to New York, which is where he was originally from, um, because um, of the opening of, of a position at the American Union against militarism. You know, and so these people all sort of converged around you know, a set of activities, and the the ACLU itself was formed in 1920. I mean, and I think we were we were saying. I mean, there was something called the National Civil Liberties Bureau, which grew out of the American Union Against Militarism, and that was formed in 1917. And that was that was formed specifically to work with all of these young people who were being persecuted for speaking out against the war or for not wanting to fight in the war. Uh, in that same period of time, or shortly after that, I should say, um, Baldwin, who would become director of the National Civil, Civil Liberties Bureau, actually served time uh, in prison because he himself was a, um, a conscientious objector. So he served time for that. So, so we get to um, 1920, and, and you mentioned the Palmer Raids, and the Palmer Raids, of course, were... Yeah, these things uh, implemented by the then Attorney General, uh, A. Mitchell Palmer, who decided he was going to root out um, communism, radicalism, um, not atheism, but but anarchists uh, in America. So he presided over these huge raids, um, usually at night, where they would, uh, where the Justice Department or Justice Department people uh, would round up folks for the most part, who were thought to be associated with radical thought, and then, and and in and in 1919, you know, that meant the Communist Party by and large, but also other uh, other related groups, and at least related in their mind, that they thought were working to undermine America. 
So they had these group arrests, thousands and thousands of people. Um, it was it, it was also a very volatile time for for unions in this country. I mean, 1919, you you had um, a massive coal strike, a massive steel strike. Uh, you had the you know, dock worker strikes out west. You had police strike. You had a big police strike in in, in Boston. Uh, you had a great deal of labor unrest, which was just going on, and, and it became a sort of epic battle against the forces of uh, of, of industrialism and, and, and industrialists and labor. And you also had uh, a um, a huge number of race riots in this country. Mm-hmm. I mean, these were riots essentially riots by white Americans who wanted to make it clear to black Americans that despite many of, of, of those black Americans having fought in World War One and, and gotten a taste of uh, something similar to equality in Europe, they were not to expect that back home. You know, so you so you had um, riots in Chicago, you had a, um, a big riot uh, in, in Tulsa? Washington, D.C., Say that again. Tulsa. Yeah. Well, no. Tulsa was was later. Tulsa. Well, was, 1925. Uh, I know. Right. But, uh, but you but, but you did have a uh, a huge ride in in Elaine, um, Arkansas. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, which, we did a show which, on which, that. Which was which was comparable to Tulsa in in that scores of people were killed and that riot, which was attributed to what was called a Negro uprising. Uh, was basically rooted in the fact that a bunch of black sharecroppers, um, cotton farmers, uh, wanted to get a fair price for their crops. Uh, prices had been depressed because of the war. There, there had been a cap on what could, what people could charge, uh, and the, and 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 because they were black, they weren't getting you know a fair amount of money. So so they went to lawyers and then they were they were careful i mean they went to lawyers outside of elaine uh, white lawyers you know to to and hired them to help them form a union and once the the good people of elaine got wind of this they basically said you know this is just not going to happen um and they first declared war on the union and 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 uh, interrupted the the meeting place which was a church uh, where the unionists were trying to organize, and then went on a killing rampage, uh, which ended up uh, with federal troops coming in, and, and the number of people like Tulsa, which happened a few years after that, who were killed is, is not is not known to this day, but there were scores of people killed, um, basically because they were putting down the attempt of African Americans to form a union. So, so, so the ACLU <coughs> grew up in the wake of all this social unrest in America. And, and so uh, Roger Baldwin himself had just gotten out of, out of um, jail. He was trying to figure out what he was going to do with his life. wasn't quite sure at the time. The National Civil Liberties Bureau, which had formed specifically to deal with issues of the war, uh, and, and they had, had lingering issues from the war because they had a lot of people still in prison who were serving time for having opposed the war, in, in effect, including a lot of members of the IWW. Um, and they were saying, okay, well, sh- should we close this this National Civil Liberties Bureau? Should we expand it? Should we do? Should we? What, what should we do here? And what they decided was that they needed to expand it. That the issues that that they had formed to to fight were were sort of um, 
passe at this point. I mean, the war had been fought. We had won. Uh, we had had our own victory parades. But the but the issues highlighted by the war were uh, more pertinent than ever. And the whole question of whether Americans would be allowed to uh, speak uh, truth to power, to use the phrase, was very much uh, a, a big issue at that time. And they said, "Let's okay, let's form an organization. And unlike these other organizations, which had a specific mission that was really related to this one war, uh, we're going to have a broader issue. The war's over, but the but the question of free speech is still very much alive. And so they yeah, became see. an organization. I just have to do an ID. Uh, this is WBAI New York 99.5 FM, and my guest is Ellis Coase. We're talking about his latest book, Democracy, If We Can Keep It, The ACLU's 100-Year Fight for Rights in America. I'm sorry, Ellis. Go back to what you were saying. No, I was, I was just saying, and so it became clear that there was a need for an organization. There, 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 there was... A big, there was a civil liberties organization that was existing in New York. It was a local organization, and in and, and the opinion, at least of, of Baldwin, it wasn't very effective. Um, and the whole issue of testing civil liberties was yeah. something that, it, and, and civil and, 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 and free speech, had never really happened in America before. I mean, it's hard to believe that, it, that over 100 years after the Constitution had passed, we never had really tested that, but there have been all kinds of episodes where the government had forbidden speech on things. I mean, there was a time when the South wouldn't allow you to use to circulate literature that was anti-slavery. I mean, there are all kinds of violations of what we would now consider clear violations of First Amendment that we mm-hmm. just accepted as, as what, was, what was American sort of thought. Uh, and so... A lot of what they did in their early years was to get Americans used to this idea that they could speak out, they could, that that they had that they had the right um, to speak out their to, to speak out on issues and to speak their minds. And and some of what they were engaged in, I think, I guess you would even call sort of guerrilla theater. And I mean, they would go to public settings, um, city squares, and and other places which usually had rules which said you had to get the permission of city fathers you know to have any kind of uh, any kind of assembly and that otherwise you were breaking the law and they would stand up and start reading the constitution uh and then you know the police would come and arrest them for reading the constitution and they would take these cases to court and so, they would um... win them well, that's what I was going to ask you, because uh, as you point out, in the 1920s, the ACLU expanded its scope to include protecting the free speech rights of artists and, and striking workers. And then and it also worked with the NAACP. And then uh, in the 30s, they started to engage uh, in work combating police misconduct, supporting mm-hmm. Native American rights. It sounds very 2020 in some cases. But were they generally successful in these suits? Well, some they weren't, some they weren't, and 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 that's an interesting question, Leonard. Um, and 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 you're right. I mean, their mission expanded as the as the years went by. When they when they uh, when they initially started, they were focused not totally, but but largely on the whole issue of free speech. Um, and then little by little, they got involved in 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 other issues. I mean, some of their their big cases. 
I mean, they they were the um, Clarence Darrow working for them um, was the yeah. lawyer on the Scopes trial. You know, the the famous case where um, they Tennessee prohibited the teaching of evolution. Right, but what? But the interesting thing about that case, which was the case that was uh, argued in what twenty nineteen twenty six, I think, you know, is that no, actually it was nineteen twenty five. You know, but uh, in in that case, they lost. Yeah. Um, you know, they um, and 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 the decision got reversed in the technicality, and because it did get reversed in the technicality, they didn't get to take it to the Supreme Court, which is what they wanted to do. But they highlighted the issue in a, in a very interesting way. But I think in a more in, in what's more interesting is that once you got outside these sort of narrow cases, which had to do, as I said, with them fighting city fathers who didn't want them to be able to to give a speech um, in the city square, and then you got into some more um, freighted cases, um, more fraught cases, I guess I will say. I mean, there were there were. There was the, the famous Scottsboro case. boy, for example. I say that again now. The Scottsboro boys case. Uh, well, the Scottsboro uh, boys case came came later, but but yeah, that was in the 1930s, and then I'll and I'll get to that in a second. Well, I'm moving but, because we only have an hour. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, but but a, a couple of the big cases from the 20s, though, which which really tested uh, free speech. Um, were uh, a case called it was a case in 1925, which was just called called Gitlow, and that was and that was around some um, people who were communists uh, and who published a, uh, a manifesto in a newspaper, and they were brought up on charges of violating the New York law against um, what they call called uh, criminal syndicalism at the time, which is basically being a communist. Um, they lost their case, um, but even in losing their case, uh, one, um, they got a, um, a beautiful statement from Louis Brandeis, who was a, who was a um, revered member of the Supreme Court, articulating a big defense of freedom of speech, even though he voted along with the rest of them that in this particular case they had violated the law. But more important, they got a concession from the Supreme Court that the First Amendment applied to the states. Um, and so, up until then, it was not even it, it, it was considered law that the, that the First Amendment didn't apply to to, to the to the states. Uh, there was also another important case, uh, a Whitney case, which was a, um, a California woman who had joined the Communist Party. Um, she also lost her case. But again, you know, even in losing, you had this huge defense that. The, uh, uh, that a couple of the justices, including you know, Powell and Brandeis, wrote as a defense of free speech, which was bizarre since they were voting against her. And they, and they basically said, well, in this particular case, you know, she violated the law, but we really advocate free speech. So you, so you had the intellectual underpinnings of an argument for free speech that, that came about, which ended up surviving past that particular case, is my point. But, but going to, to Scottsboro, which was the case of boys in Alabama, uh, young black men in Alabama, who in the early 1930s, 1931, who were unfairly accused of, of raping, um, there, were, there were, I guess, 10 boys in total. They were unfairly accused of raping two white um, girls on a train uh, in Alabama was a case that went on for years. Uh, and because, and, and for various, I mean, they, they kept getting convicted. 
and the convictions kept getting thrown out in in a few cases by the Supreme Court and in other cases by lower courts because there were all kinds of, of improprieties. And basically what Alabama had decided to do was to convict and kill these 10 black boys who were clearly not guilty, who were, who were clearly wrongly accused, uh, just because they were accused of raping two white girls. And, 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 and this was something that the Alabamians, at least the white Alabamians, decided couldn't stand. So, so, they, so they railroaded them before inevitably all white, all white juries, and this case went on and on. And, and this, was, this, was, this was a case in which typical ACLU's approach at the time the ACLU was not the lawyer of record on this case, uh, but it did a lot of work behind the scenes. It brought together you know, a lot of the attorneys who ended up uh, being involved in the case. It paid a lot of the legal fees uh, that were associated with the case, and it did a, a seminal report in that it sent a, a young journalist, female journalist, you know, down to Alabama to investigate the case early on, and, and, it, and, it, and she wrote a report that sort of created general awareness about the fact that these, you know, 10 young men were being railroaded in Alabama just because this racist system wanted to have 10 black scalps for because these two white girls claim, you know, claimed to have been raped and uh it became a national case in in for lots of reasons but in large measure because of the ACLU involvement in it. You said that uh, they, uh, many of their cases involved the defense of Communist Party members. But in 1940, didn't the ACLU leadership vote to exclude communists from its leadership positions, in, including uh, a founding board member who had, had Communist Party ties? Uh, uh, what was going on there? Were they just succumbing to the pressures of the times? Uh, because, is, yeah. because they were yeah. fighting McCarthyism and the Red Scare, uh, not all that much after that. Yeah, uh, and 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 actually, even when McCarthyism was was not the ACLU's brightest moment, um, but back then, of course, it was was ten years before McCarthyism, you know, a little bit more than ten years before McCarthyism, and the the impetus for and and the board member you're talking about was a woman named uh, Elizabeth uh, Gurley yeah. Flynn. Mm-hmm. Uh, who was a very, who was a very prominent communist? Uh, she was a board member of the Communist Party in America. Uh, she was a very well known uh, person who uh, was involved in, in, in just a range of progressive causes and, and and was somewhat of a celebrity in her own right. Yeah, and she was a founding member of the ACLU, as, as you as you point out. She had also been involved uh, with the. Um, with the, with the IWW, um, and had initially been among those indicted, and then her case was was subsequently dropped. So she wasn't so she wasn't persecuted prosecuted for that. Um, but in in 1939, um, the Soviets um, and the Germans signed a non-aggression pact mm-hmm. with each other, and and basically, you know, they became allies. And at that point. Um, the whole question of the communist impact on America had gained, you know, renewed political salience, and the ACLU was under fire from lots of places, but particularly the um, House and the Senate committees investigating these kinds of activities, 
and they were and, and the ACLU was being accused of being communist. Baldwin himself had written a book in the 20s that was very sympathetic, got to the uh, rising communist regime, uh, and they were they were sort of tainted in their mind with this whole association with communist thing, and they were and so, so they were interested in disassociating from that, and. They decided that the way to do that was to knock off uh, people from the you know, people from their board who were connected with totalitarian movements, which was just sort of the way they they phrased it. But the fact of the matter, and and, and they and they included among these you know memberships and 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 the uh, uh, various fascist parties and and in the uh, you know uh, and Nazi you know Nazi parties and 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 uh, the the, you know, the the German uh factions but they but 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 they were there weren't there were no de- declared fascists on the ACLU board uh so this was so this was, so this was clearly not aimed at people who were who had sworn fealty to some totalitarian regime in general it was it was targeted uh to get rid of, of Elizabeth Gurley Flynn because she had oh. become in their I, I have to take a little break and we'll get back to some of the political ramifications uh, after we uh, take a break. This is Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Before we return to my conversation with Ellis Coase, uh, I'd like to take just a, a couple of minutes to ask you to consider contributing to this station to help us get back on our feet because the pandemic has made our financial situation quite difficult. We need everyone who tunes in to Leonard Lopate at Large and is financially able to please step up right now. <laughs> Excuse me, I'm getting all choked up about this. <coughs> Give Go to our website. Give to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and this station on the air. And one great way to support WBAI without having to lay out a lot of money at any one time is to become a BAI buddy. Listeners who contribute $10 or more each month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on this show. Joining us now is my executive producer, Jesse Lent, to tell you about a special offer for anyone who becomes a BAI buddy during today's show. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Leonard. Great to be on the show. Yes, anyone who signs up to become a sustaining member of WBAI, a BAI buddy, as Leonard just said, will get a copy of the book that we've been discussing, or Leonard and his guest Ellis Coase, a a columnist and contributing editor for Newsweek, have been discussing called Democracy, If We Can Keep It, the ACLU's 100-Year Fight for Rights in America. And again, to make it clear for everybody, all you need to do is sign up to become a sustaining member by calling 516 Six two zero three six zero two. We're going to give to wbai.org and tell them 
that you want to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopez at large. That's it. If you do that today, uh, we will send you the book. You don't need to mention the book to them. I will take care of the rest. We will take care of the rest. So all we need you to do is make that call today to become a sustaining member, to get a copy of Democracy, if we can keep it the ACLU's 100-year fight for rights in America. But So that's, that's one way you can contribute. But whatever way you do, the important thing is that you st- step up and keep shows like today coming to you and everyone within our 90-mile broadcast radius, uh, getting shows like today. You know, Leonard, you know, we, Leonard and I, we, we, we try not to take ourselves too seriously. We know we're, we're, uh, we're just one show here on the media landscape. But every once in a while, a show like today just really makes me feel proud to be involved with this show and the fact that we're getting this incredibly important history out on the airwaves. Uh, I don't know about you, but, but I was feeling pretty good about it. And uh, I want to get back to this conversation because there's so much more to tell. But a reminder, uh, we want you uh, to uh, support the, the station, whatever level you're comfortable donating it at. The important thing is that you step up right now to show your support because we are 100% listener-sponsored. 516-620-3602 or go to give to wbai.org. And Jesse, thank you. Uh, Ellis, let's get back to you because there's so much story here. Uh, I, I, there's no way we're right. going to get to it all. For example, uh, the ACLU argued against the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II, but it wasn't successful in that fight. It was not successful, and it was, it was and, and it was a a, um, a crusade of mixed popularity within the ACLU. Um, there were a lot of people who were very nervous about opposing um, the United States and its policies. Uh, and, and as you know, in, in 1942. Um, the United States basically uh, adopted a policy of, of, of interning um, Japanese who were on the coast. But since and, the and ACLU's stated mission is to protect civil rights, uh, why so many internal divisions over goals and methods? There was a, a lot of nervousness, um, partly because it was seen as a as a just war and, and, and about the whole question uh, do they really want to get involved in opposing this war, or at least policies that, that the United States was arguing were essential to fighting this war? Um, there was the, uh, the 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 issue of um, to what extent the government was right, you know, and you know, what, were, were some of these um, Japanese Americans really a security threat? Did, did the ACLU really know whether they were, or, you know, or whether they weren't? Um, there was the whole question of, of uh, you know, do they really want to fight, want to take on the um, the Roosevelt administration and fight, you know, and, and fight their country in, in, in this kind of conflict? And so, what they ended up doing was compromising. I mean, they 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 sort of said, okay, um, you know, it's, it's clearly wrong to take people and throw them into what are in effect prisons just because of their ethnicity. So we so we can't support that, but we don't want to make this a constitutional issue, and we can't say it's unconstitutional for the government to do this. So let's try to fight these issues you know, one one at a time on, on issues of law and whatnot. 
and you know there were there were major divisions with, with within the board. Um, they were finally, they were sort of forced into these cases by the uh, the West Coast chapters, which is which is of course where the um, the intern people by and large were coming from. Um, the you know the Seattle and and um, California chapters who said, wait, we can't sit this one out. We have to get involved in this. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and they ultimately decided, yes, okay, they would. And they, and they ended up taking four cases you know, that had to do with the internment of Japanese Americans. And they took them all with the Supreme Court. And they ended up losing on, on those cases. Uh, the Supreme Court essentially said, you know, no, it's perfectly okay you know, for us to intern people just because of their ethnicity. I mean, that that... That decision was never formally overturned. I mean, Roberts um, only a year or so ago uh, pronounced it, you know, in in in, in ruling on the um, um, the current administration's in, you know, not internment policies, but the current administration's policies on exclusion of, uh, of Muslims. The, you know, basically said that that was wrong when it was when it was when it was decided, and and, and it was bad law. Um, but it's never been formally overturned. Um, there was a, a, a sort of apology that was issued by by Congress uh, several decades later, and and then they and they got a small legal victory, basically proving that the the, the United States had had been dishonest in arguing those cases. But for the um, for the ACLU, it was one of these situations where, if not for the uh, determination. Of certain chapters, you know, to get this, you know, to to make the ACLU fight this fight, would probably have sat it out. Well, all sorts of interesting people pop up in this story. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was tapped to head its women's rights project in 1972. What were some of the the issues that project addressed? Uh, one of the issues it addressed was the issue of uh, equal representation. Well, well, equal representation is not the right term, um, but but there was the whole question of whether uh, women should be excluded uh, one from the right to administer in the state just because the state had passed a law giving preference to men. So 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 she was very much involved um, in in that set of cases. Um, but also over the whole question of whether women could be uh, uh, excused from juries just because they were women, uh, you know, there was this there was this this uh, body of law and 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 custom that saw the, the woman's role was to be home and to make and to make sure everything was taken care of, and she, you know, we can have women being forced to testify or not testify, but to serve on juries if it interfered with that. So these became cases, um, and uh, Ruth, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, had become passionate about these kinds of things. I mean, in part because of her own personal experience. I mean, she she started at Harvard um, because her husband got transferred to New York and got a job in New York. She ended up finishing at Columbia uh, Law School, and she graduated first in her class, or I think she tied for first in her class when she came out of Columbia, but she could not find a job. Uh, could not find a job in law because all of these um, law firms were not interested in putting women on any sort of partnership track. Um, so she ended up uh, working in, in various other things and finally getting a job as a uh, the first full-time uh, law professor, I believe, at, at, at Rutgers. Uh, and then subsequently, when there was a move to hire women 
and mall faculties in the Ivy League. Um, she was recruited by Columbia and went to Columbia. So she had a highly developed sense of, of women's rights. She was also a big fan of um, the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund and his work with African Americans in terms of getting rights. So she wanted to take on the portfolio of, uh, of women's rights, and it just so happened that she knew the legal director from the ACLU at the time, uh, partly because he had, when she had been in school uh, and, and a very young person, had been a camp a, a camp counselor for her. Yeah, so they had a you know a, they renewed a relationship, and to make a long story short, she in, she ended up getting recruited uh, by uh, the then head of the ACLU, Arie Nair, uh, to come in and head up what became their, uh, their their women's rights division. And this was the time, and 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 when the we talk about areas of expansion for the ACLU, I mean it. it it experiences in the late 20s, 30s, when when Baldwin had suggested that they ex- expand their mandate, and experienced it again, you know, in the uh, late 70s and, and 80s, you know, when they were again going through an expansion of what their mandate should be, and one of those ex- one of those expansions was happened to coincide with the rising of the prominence of the whole area of, of women and how women were treated in law and, and how women were treated in society. And the ACLU decided it wanted to be part of that, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg, um, as, a, as a condition when she took her um, position at Columbia University, got them to agree that she could spend half of her time working with the ACLU on these, on these women's cases. Now, uh, we don't have time to cover all of the, the, the really interesting stories, but I'm going to list a bunch. Uh, they sued on behalf of mental patients, the disabled and prisoners, uh, got involved with the issues surrounding post-9-11 war on terror, uh, the Edward Snowden affair. Uh, they defended Jehovah's Witnesses, argued and won against Arkansas's 1981 creationism statute, which required schools to teach the biblical account of creation as a scientific alternative to evolution. Uh, And uh, got a lot of people upset because uh, although the ACLU has been under constant attack from the political right over the course of its history, it's defended George Wallace, George Lincoln Rockwell, Ku Klux Klan members, American Nazis many times, uh, and uh, their actions often brought protests, particularly from American Jews, because of ex- what happened with Skokie. They defended the rights of the marches in Skokie in 1977, and more recently, the white supremacists who rallied in Charlottesville, Virginia in 2017. Uh, was that were any of those things acceptable to all of the ACLU's members? Well, it's interesting. I mean, the, the, the 78 case was... In some cases, and in, in, in some respects, probably one of the worst periods of the ACLU history, because they did get a lot of pushback. Not not so much internally, they got a lot of pushback externally from their decision to defend a bunch of Nazis in Chicago who decided they were going to march on Skokie, which was a largely Jewish suburb of Chicago, which at the time you know had many many Holocaust survivors, and. A lot of people were angered at this, particularly uh, Jewish Americans were saying, what the hell? I mean, why, why are you defending these Nazis who are going to march on our, you know, on, on, on our community in Skokie? This makes absolutely no sense. Uh, and that uh, led to 
one of the uh, most public uh, crises in their entire history, and 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 it fueled the financial crises to to a large extent. And in many in many areas, their reputation took a took a huge hit as they tried to explain this. And the interesting fact about the ACLU is that it had always taken cases like this, but but there was none that was such a high-profile case. I mean, it, it wrote a pamphlet in the 1930s called Why We Defend Nazis uh, and, and when, as Hitler was, was rising. And so this was not new, and it was, it was, it was, it was so not new that among the, uh, the staff in Chicago and Illinois, which decided to take this case, they didn't even consult with national um, before deciding they wanted to do this, because it was just, of course, we we do this sort of thing. Um, you mentioned Charlottesville a couple, of, which was just a couple of years yeah. ago, of course, and and and, 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 and the, somebody uh, died as a result of of that uh, that march. Yeah, and and, and there it, were it good became another crisis. There were people. There were. It, it, it became another crisis for the ACLU, and 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 the, there are many differences in that, you know, but. The one big difference that I point to is that whereas in 78, um, internally, the ACLU had a policy and, and, a, and, a, and a position where they knew they defended these, these awful people because for them, the, the right to speak was more important than the, than the particular person speaking. And, and their argument, going back from the beginning, was that if we don't defend you know, these horrible people and their right to speak, and then we're going to have a hard time defending the rights of people we really agree with, and we can't we can't stand up for you know a, a Nazi in Skokie. Uh, can we really stand up for a civil rights worker in, in Selma? You know, was was sort of the way they it was, was was the way they put the argument, and that was so, accepted within the ACLU. So we so we flash forward to Charlottesville, um, and we talked a bit about their expanding mission. I mean, part, and part of their mission was a, a mission of um, of racial equity. Um, they you know, back in the in the old days they didn't have a a, a section that dealt with uh, a, a, a specific section to deal with racial equality and to deal with with racial problems in the country. Now they do. Um, back in those days, they also had very very few members of color who were who worked within the ACLU. Now that's changed substantially, yeah. you know. And so even within the ACLU, uh, when it when it, and you mentioned the Charlottesville, uh, a, a a young uh, white guy who was part of this neo-Nazi anti-Semitic movement um, intentionally. Um, ran into a crowd of protesters and killed and injured um, over 30 people and killed one um, in doing so, and he ended up, you know, going on trial. But in a sense, the ACLU also went on and went on trial internally because they, uh, a number of, of staff members within came together to write a uh, ended up being two different letters to say, wait a minute. Why are we defending people like this? And and the ACLU had to go back all over again and sort of rethink uh, its policy when it came when it came came Tell to us, we, people who. We have one minute left. <laughs> I just wanted to oh. cover one other thing. You write that although the organization has pledged to remain nonpartisan, uh, you 
note, as of early 2019, the ACLU had initiated 186 legal actions against the Trump administration, including 92 lawsuits. And in the 2018 midterms, it supported many ballot initiatives and candidates that had an impact on civil liberties. And you argue that a decline of truth is the current political moment and poses a unique challenge for the ACLU, which has to find a way to continue its core mission of defending free speech while also protecting American democracy. Uh, can you sum up in just a minute? Yeah, I, and, I mean, if I had to sum up, I would say that the ACLU came to be seen as a legal organization, but I think it's increasingly seen itself as an organization that fights for rights across the board, and, and that one thing that it concluded is that it needed to get involved in, in initiatives and, and things that seem like partisan politics which they decided were not really partisan politics because they were standing up for rights that were essential for Americans. Ellis Coase's latest book is Democracy, If We Can Keep It, the ACLU's 100-Year Fight for Rights in America, published by the New Press. Ellis, it's been a very great pleasure talking with you today. It's been great, Leonard. Thank you for having me. And on Fortunately, that brings us to the end of today's show. If you're new to our program and would like to hear more, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. Plus, you can find links to all of our past shows on our website, LeonardLocatedLarge.com. And if there's anything that you would like to talk to me about today's show or past shows or just to say hello, you can reach me by email at LeonardLocate at WBAI.org. Before I sign off today, I'd like to ask you just one last time for your support of this station, because if you care about Leonard Lopez and Lodge and all of the other great programs on BAI, we need your help to keep this thing alive, especially now during the pandemic when money has become so tight. So please step up right now and make a contribution at whatever level you're comfortable with. We need all of our loyal listeners to go to our website, give to WBAI.org, or to call 516-620-3602 right now to keep this in-depth content we bring you on the show coming to you weekdays from 1 to 2. And if you sign up right now to become a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy, we'd be happy to send you the book that we have been discussing today, Democracy, if we can keep it, the ACLU's 100-year fight for rights in America. Uh, it's by Ellis Coase. Uh, please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopez at large. And from all of us at this show, thank you so much. And we hope that you'll join us again tomorrow when Ramona S. Diaz will discuss her documentary, A Thousand Cuts, which looks at the conflicts between the press and the government of the Philippines under President Rodrigo Duterte. We'll see you then. <laughs>